from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Days after Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker signed legislation to ban assault weapons, the new law faces legal challenges at both the state and federal level. There are millions of law-abiding people in the state of Illinois who don't deserve to have their rights trampled even in the face of horror and, and tragedy. Man, I think that we are in danger of losing our country if we don't stand up, if we don't wake up. And you know, I didn't leave the farm to go to the General Assembly to stand by and watch somebody like J.B. Pritzker trash our Constitution. And now he's coming after our guns and we're just here to tell him that there's 2.5 million legal gun owners in the state of Illinois that need a word and if he thinks that he's going to come in here and make us register our legally obtained firearms, well, he better pack a lunch because it's not going to happen. We won't comply. We're not taking anybody's guns away. By the way, no guns are being confiscated under this law. We are stopping the sale uh, and uh, you know, future acquisition of these kinds of weapons. It's Governor J.B. Pritzker. We also heard there from Republican Representative Blaine Willauer and also the attorney David Siegel. He's filed a federal lawsuit over the state's assault weapons ban. Legal filings have been happening at the state level as well. This issue playing out in the courts over the next several months, it appears. We'll get an update on that. Also, Illinois paying off some debts. We'll discuss it all and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Also with us, we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. And Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. Joining us today, we have Brendan Moore. He covers Illinois state government for Lee Enterprises. And Brendan, it's always good to have you back. Thanks for being here. Always happy to be on, Sean. So, Brendan, it seems like every week we talk more about these lawsuits. There are more of them every week. Uh, over this gun law and uh, give us an update on what's happened here since this law was signed because it's hard to keep track of everything that's been going on. Well, if you'll recall, Sean, uh, when when uh, the law, well, when it was then a bill uh, before it passed the Senate, uh, Senate President Don Harmon uh, said, we will see you in court, uh, which was a retort to many of the lawmakers and advocates, uh, uh, Second Amendment advocates who were saying the same thing earlier that the proposal was unconstitutional. So everybody kind of knew this was going to end up in the legal realm. So, you know, it passed the Senate, passed the House, Governor Pritzker signs it. And a week later, the first lawsuits start coming out of the woodwork. Uh, as I mentioned in the opening, the uh, it's happening at the state and the federal level. The uh, Illinois State Rifle Association, the National Rifle Association, uh, and several of those groups have, have filed at the federal level. But we're seeing a lot of these state-level lawsuits pop up in uh, several downstate counties. Former Attorney General candidate Tom DeVore uh, has been involved with a couple of them, one in Effingham County, one in White County. Each of those have, first one had 850 plaintiffs, I think the second one had about 1,600. More recently, uh, State Representative Dan Calkins and about 600 uh, plaintiffs filed in Macon County. The judge in the Effingham case ruled last week uh, uh, granting a, a temporary restraining order uh, that basically frees those plaintiffs in that case, frees them from, from having the law enforced on them so they can still, you know, I guess, purchase these weapons and 
um, are, are not subject to the law as it goes through the system. We're kind of seeing these two parallel tracks right now with the state and the federal. Long term, this is probably going to end up in federal court. It's a Second Amendment case. Uh, but if you talk to folks that are filing at the state level, they will say pretty blatantly that, you know, yes, we, we acknowledge that's probably where it's going to go. But in the short term, at least, uh, uh, the best way to get relief now is at the state court where you can file in a downstate court where you probably have a, a, a judge that's, that's more friendly to the Second Amendment, is more willing to grant these TROs and uh, basically uh, uh, allow for uh, some, some, I guess, relief from, from this law. And uh, we kind of saw this pop up, uh, uh, you know, a little bit different of an issue, but uh, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, with some of Governor Pritzker's uh, emergency orders. Uh, you know, you had Darren Bailey filing in, in Clay County uh, and, and got some favorable rulings until eventually it uh, was bumped to Sangamon County and he, he didn't do so well there. Um, eventually, this will probably end up, uh, these cases will probably end up being consolidated uh, because it's just going to be chaotic. Uh, you're going to have, you know, the attorney general's office is having to respond to all these different cases. Uh, eventually, they may may consolidate and move it to a different circuit. Um, you know, the basis of the lawsuit at the state level, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, uh, issues uh, being discussed are the uh, what, what's called the you know single subject rule and the three readings rules in the Illinois Constitution, basically saying that you know law you know bills have to be about a single issue. They have to be read three times in each chamber. Um, basically, that. They're saying that the legislature abused the process in terms of passing the law, uh, but as we've seen with other issues, that 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 argument doesn't really stand. Um, as you go further up the courts, um, we saw that most recently with with the Safety Act ruling, uh, where where that issue was kind of uh, determined as moot. So uh, again, at at the at the state level, again, the state Supreme Court is five two majority Democrat. Um, if it gets to, if it even gets to that level, uh, I mean, the, I guess the, the, the legal path for, for, for some of these plaintiffs, it gets a lot murkier as you go up in Illinois, obviously the Supreme Court of the United States or the federal courts, it's a lot more uncertain with how the conservative, the Supreme Court is now, uh, the, and, and, and especially with the, uh, following the Bruin decision, which, uh, uh, basically laid out a new way to evaluate Second Amendment cases. So th that leads to a lot of uncertainty at the federal level. But uh, yeah, for now, though, uh, these these uh, court cases are playing out at the state level. And that's where, at least for now, uh, some of these gun owners who want to get out from under this law are, are seemingly been able to in, in some of these downstate courtrooms. Yeah, Charlie, this might be more expedient going the state route for some of these folks uh, for now, but we've talked a little bit before about this. Uh, like like Brendan laid out some of the arguments that are being made in the state courts about this single subject rule, that type of thing. You didn't feel have they have as good of a case there, but federal courts, that may be a whole different story. Yeah, and I, I think as, as Brendan said, it's quicker to file a, a, a suit in a downstate in southern Illinois or east central Illinois county 
where the judge is going to be sympathetic. And as a matter of fact, I believe one of the judges involved uh, was just recently elected to the bench. And in a prior life as a state's attorney, he had joined in other state's attorneys objecting to the Safety Act. So it was pretty obvious where he was coming from. And these are, in my mind, they're sort of cut and paste lawsuits. They make pretty much the same arguments and they don't particularly focus on the Second Amendment. Instead, they focus on these procedural provisions or requirements as Brendan suggested single subject, three readings, and basically what the courts have held in the past in a number of other cases is that if the Senate president and the House speaker sign off on a piece of legislation saying that it has met all the procedural requirements in terms of readings and single subject and so on, the courts will defer to that. And so I don't think once they get out of friendly downstate circuits to the appellate level and ultimately probably to the Illinois Supreme Court, I don't think these cases are going to go anywhere. On the other hand, they're making money for the lawyers who file them. In my mind, the real threat is going to come on the federal level. And the arguments being made there are based on Second Amendment considerations in lieu of some recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings on the issue. Uh, the NRA, National Rifle Association, was involved in one of these suits that was filed just this past week, I believe. And they point out that in a 2008 Supreme Court decision, the, the justices said there can't be any restrictions on and this is a quote, weapons that are in common use unless there is evidence of an enduring American tradition of restriction. And the NRA said, and again, this is a quote, that the Illinois law takes the radical step of banning nearly every modern semi-automatic rifle, the single most popular type of rifle in the country, possessed by Americans in the tens of millions. And see, I think that's the argument that is probably going to prevail, again, at the federal level. We'll see these downstate judges uh, saying, oh, yeah, they, they didn't read the bill the right way. Uh, but that's not going to survive. In my mind, the real threat is at the federal level. And although Governor Pritzker has, has what would you say, sort of tried to reassure supporters of gun control, saying, oh, yes, uh, this will pass muster. We're sure it will. We're the ninth state to do it. Eight other states have done it. But if I'm not mistaken, it's being challenged in those eight other states, and it could well wind up that Illinois becomes the ninth state to have their ban thrown out. We've also talked on the show before, uh, uh, Brendan, about the uh, sheriffs, many of them, I think there was close to 90 that have announced they, they don't plan to enforce this law. And maybe they won't have to, like Charlie said, if things uh, go their way in court. But uh, a lot of that is happening in downstate areas, but also in other places. In fact, I saw where I believe the DuPage County Sheriff has announced he won't, and there seems to be some pushback on both sides there. But you cover, Brendan, a lot of these, uh, what people would refer to as downstate areas, more uh, cities that are often surrounded by a lot of rural areas. Uh, your thought on that as far as the the sheriffs not, not enforcing it, there seems to be quite a bit of public support, at least vocally, that I'm hearing from people in those areas. 
Absolutely. These sheriffs are, they're elected officials. So they're, they're, they're simply reflecting the views of uh, a majority of their, of their constituents. Uh, it, it should come as no surprise that, that they would issue such statements or, or, or raise such issues as they have with other issues that have uh, come before the uh, legislature, such as the safety act. Um, you know, obviously this is no different with, with, you know, a second amendment, uh, supposedly a second amendment issue here with the assault weapons ban. But I think that what is kind of missing here is that it doesn't say anywhere in the law that, you know, sheriffs have to, you know, go door to door and, and, and enforce this thing. Uh, obviously Illinois state police is the main agency that will be, uh, charged with enforcing this. Obviously, you know, they work with local law enforcement and, and federal uh, uh, law enforcement on on issues such as gun trafficking. Uh, so so there will probably be a role for local officials to play uh, at some point. But uh, you know it's not it's not what some were, are making it seem. Uh, and even now the ban's in effect, but you know again till the end of this year. Uh, gun owners can have until the end of this year to, to, to register their weapons, you know, their serial numbers, uh, and, and be in compliance. So there's nothing to enforce on that. end right now, I suppose you could enforce, you know, at gun shops, you know, if gun shops are illegally selling these weapons, but we haven't seen any evidence of that. I think that, uh, you know, the, their statements were, dare I say, political, um, you know, they're making political statements, they are elected officials and, they were simply, uh, I guess, trying to reassure the people that elected them. Although I think some would say that uh, they should probably refrain from commenting on on some of these issues. Uh, uh, although, again, the, the State Sheriff's Association will say that they never said it was unconstitutional. They said that they believe it's unconstitutional, uh, whether whether that, that, that distinction matters or not. Um, you know, but obviously at the end of the day, that decision will end up well that whether whether it is legal or not i mean legislature passes the laws and if there's a legal challenge then a judge will eventually decide as we just talked about uh, uh there are several lawsuits going on right now and and eventually there will be a legal uh, uh there will be some type of ruling handed down uh but yes in the meantime uh obviously uh it, it's uh uh, become a, a, a hot button political issue. And uh, uh, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that sheriffs would chime in on this, uh, even if, uh, you know, it, it might it might be missing the point a little bit uh, uh, because quite frankly, they don't have the largest enforcement role in, in this law, you know, as it's written. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield. Our panel includes Charlie Wheeler and Brendan Moore of Lee Enterprises. Well, Charlie, the state announced this week it's paid off the unemployment insurance trust fund debt. There was a big announcement on this a few weeks back. Fill us in again on how this was accomplished. Yeah, well, during the, the height of the pandemic, we collected a lot of money alone from the federal government to be able to make unemployment insurance payments to people who were laid off uh, during the pandemic crisis. And at the tail end of the fall session, business and labor reached an agreement 
for a way to pay off the remaining debt. And I believe it was in the nature of roughly $1.4 billion that we owed to the federal government. Were this debt not to have been paid off, the business community would have faced huge penalty payments going forward. So the, basically what the deal does is it saves the state $20 million in interest costs that would have been due in September. And it calls for the money to come at the state level from the better than expected revenues that we've collected during this fiscal year. And that pay will be used to pay off the remainder of the four and a half billion dollar loan we took from the feds. And the uh, agreement uses, as they say, roughly $1.4 billion going to the federal government, an additional $450 million in you know, surplus revenues, we go into a trust fund from state funds, and that will be repaid by the business community, and the money will be put into the state's rainy day fund. And so, in my mind, this is another sign of the state's fiscal health improving. And when you look at where we were, oh, what, back in, in two, 2017, when we had a bill backlog of roughly $16.7 billion to where we are today when our bill backlog of, as of this morning was less than $2 billion. We've made a whole lot of progress. Uh, roughly a year ago, the final $297 million in interfund borrowing that we took out got paid off. In 2020, we borrowed something like $3.5 billion in low-interest loans from the Federal Reserve and we've now gotten that all paid off ahead of time, saving ourselves $82 million in interest costs. And so we're really in, in much better fiscal shape than we've been in a while. Now, that doesn't mean everything's going to be rosy going ahead. There are still challenges we need to face. But as I say, we're in a heck of a lot better position than we were, say, six, seven years ago. Charlie, we've heard a lot about, including audits, that found a lot of fraud that had happened with unemployment insurance during the pandemic. Did that contribute to the, this high amount of money? Oh, I, I expect that it did, because that fraud that we heard, and I forget the number in my mind, something $60, $80 billion, uh, that was a national number. So Illinois wasn't the only state. And part of it was, particularly here, our computer systems are really not the most recent. And so the situation was that in our in our zeal to help people who were really suffering, we didn't necessarily go through all the steps or we didn't have the ability to totally vet every application. It was, we wanna help people and maybe on your application, all the T's aren't crossed, all the I's aren't dotted, but we're going to get you the money anyway. And then after the fact, the feds took a look and did the audit, and they discovered that nationally, a lot of money went out to people who didn't deserve it. And there have been stories of folks being charged with fraud under this program and being indicted and, and facing criminal penalties. So, yeah, there was a certain amount of, of fraud involved. But as I say, in my mind, it was, at least here in Illinois, it's because our computer systems are so outdated, number one. Number two, the number of applicants we had was overwhelming compared to historic numbers. 
And so the folks in charge of the program kind of decided it's important that we help people and maybe worry about if a few bad apples slip through rather than denying a whole bunch of good apples. That that would be my take on it. Well, this agreement that was reached here to pay this off, Brendan, I know you covered that back uh, when it was first announced. That We, we discussed at that time on the show how that was more reminiscent of how things used to be, where people would get together, you know, maybe people on differing sides, they'd come together, they'd work out some arrangement. And even when people think that, that uh, the two parties are as polarized as possible and labor and, and uh, management in many cases are, are also polarized, here is an opportunity to show that, yeah, things can still get done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh to get to this agreement, they utilize what folks under the dome call the agreed bill process. Uh, basically, you get representatives from labor and business, uh, Democrats and Republicans in the room uh, from the legislature, from the governor's office, and they just kind of try to hash out an agreement. And uh, that's what they did here. Uh, it was a long process. Uh, obviously, the state. Uh, uh, there's an agreement earlier in the year to pay down a portion of it, but there was still that 1.8 billion that they had to, to pay down. And, uh, and, and they'd made another payment, I think like 400 million. So there ended up being the, that 1.4 and that was the agreement they came to is how to pay that down. And uh, it was kind of reminiscent of, 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 of the past of, or at least of a process that's been used in the past, especially on some of these technical issues uh, such as unemployment, where you have specific expertise uh, uh, that, that only a few people have, you know, from business and labor. Uh, it's not really a widespread thing that there's not a lot of widespread knowledge in the General Assembly, uh, I would say, on, on, on some of these technical issues. And so, you know, it makes sense to uh, get the experts in the room and uh, uh, try to hash something out. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see that, uh, especially uh, that 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 is still a process that can be deployed, uh, even as Democrats have obviously taken super majorities in the legislature. They have the governor's office. Uh, they, I guess, technically wouldn't need to do that. But, uh, you know, it, it they included business, they included Republicans in this process and uh, came to an agreement that uh, at the very least, everyone seems to be able to live with. Well, Charlie, I'm going to save a couple of minutes to uh, talk about a report that was produced uh, just recently to take a closer look at the effect electric vehicles, uh, which we all probably believe is the future, whether you like them or not. Uh, they are definitely going to play a role in transportation uh, going forward in this state and really probably everywhere in the world. But there will be likely an impact on this when it comes to state revenue, and that comes from the motor fuel tax. Uh, fill us in, Charlie, on what, uh, what that report's about. Yeah, the report was issued a week or so ago by the Illinois Economic Policy Institute, and they're concerned that there's going to be really a steep decline in revenue that's going to be available for transportation purposes, for roads, highways, bridges, as we move to electric vehicles. Obviously, an electric vehicle doesn't use gasoline, so therefore the state's gasoline tax is not imposed. And that, according to the estimate from the uh, Institute, could run up to somewhere 
close to $800 million in combined sales and motor fuel tax. And counting the federal match, it could be as high as $1.1 billion. And this is going to be over uh, like the next decade that will not be available to do highway construction, to fix roadways, to improve bridges, all the things that we routinely expect. And so the question is, how do we make up the money? And the answer is obviously we impose some kind of a tax or a fee on electric vehicles because I may have an electric car or an electric truck. And when it runs over the, the roads and the, and the streets, the bridges, the wear and tear on that infrastructure doesn't depend on whether it's an electric vehicle or a gas powered or diesel powered vehicle. The wear and tear is pretty much the same. And so some of the suggestions include really increasing the license plate fee for electric vehicles to some huge sum, like $1,000 to get your license plate sticker, or adding a, a charging tax at the vehicle charging station, or maybe even doing on a mile travel basis. So if I'm somebody who just uses my car to go to to work and to go to church, as opposed to somebody who commutes 20, 30 miles daily, I would be paying less. The problem there is how do we track how many miles? Every year, do you have to go to some uh, motor vehicle shop and have them register your odometer and compare to what it was last year? Do we use a point-to-point -point tracking? And that, of course, raises huge privacy problems. So those are issues that are going to have to be addressed, and we're going to have to figure out some way to do it, because obviously the state's road network can't take a hit as much as a billion dollars. All right. Well, we'll go to our notes from the field. And Brendan, let's go to you first. Kind of in the same vein of uh, we're just talking about electric vehicles, uh, uh, you know, reducing emissions, climate change. Uh there is a major project uh, that's been proposed in downstate Illinois. Uh, well, it's a five-state project, uh, basically a carbon capture and sequestration pipeline that would basically take uh, carbon and transport it underground uh, to a sequestration site in Christian County. So it was uh, the company uh, Navigator CO2 Ventures filed their initial application with the Illinois Commerce Commission for the Illinois portion last year. They this week decided uh, they, they filed to withdraw that application and they are going back to the drawing board and next month plan to uh, file a new request that includes uh, authorization for additional pipeline and digital sequestration locations in the state. Basically, carbon sequestration is a, a very controversial uh, topic. Many believe it could be used to, uh, to reduce the carbon footprint, you know, safely store carbon underground. A lot of uh, landowners in the uh, in the path and the environmentalists disagree. We will, uh, it's something to, to keep an eye on. All right. And Charlie? Well, there was uh, some further, what would you say, uh, affirmation of Illinois as being a very solid agricultural state. The National Agricultural Statistics Service of the United States Department of Agriculture put out its its crop estimate report for for the calendar year 2022 uh, recently 
and it showed that Illinois soybean farmers raised 677 million bushels of soybeans on roughly 11 million harvested acres with an average yield of 63 bushels per acre. And that was the most soybeans produced in the nation by any state in 2022. So congratulations to the roughly 43,000 soybean farmers here in Illinois. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for State Peak. Feel free to join us next time. Our panel today included Charlie Wheeler and Brendan Moore with Lee Enterprises. Remember, you can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.